People are the most consequential and dangerous forces on Earth. Well, personality psychology is about the nature of human nature. It's about people. And wouldn't that be useful to know? I mean, it seems to me, I can't, I can't think of a more important problem. You're listening to the Science of Personality podcast, brought to you by Hogan Assessments, the global leader in personality assessment and leadership development since 1987. Your hosts are Hogan Chief Science Officer and world-renowned personality psychologist, Dr. Ryan Sherman, along with Hogan PR Manager and resident storyteller, Blake Lett. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sherman, along with my co-host, as always, Blake Lepp. Say hello, Blake. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast, episode 31. Today, Ryan and I are joined by world-renowned psychologist, Dr. Adrian Furnham, to discuss office politics, which is a reality in the workplace, whether you like it or not. Most of us have probably witnessed office politics in action in some form or another, And it's likely that some of those experiences were negative in nature. However, office politics are much more complex than simple dirty tricks and manipulation. Sometimes it's the only way to bring about much needed organizational change. So please welcome Adrian Furnham back to the show as our first official guest to join us for a second time. Adrian, is there anything else you'd like to mention before we dive into the episode? No, I'm very happy to go uh, ahead immediately. (laughs) Well, I just want to say thanks again, Adrian, for coming back to join us. Uh, As Blake mentioned, you're the first guest who has uh, who's come back for a second go. I don't know if that means we've scared off other ones or uh, (laughs) or what exactly that means. But we're super happy to have you back. You're the the first episode you did with us was was fantastic. And and I know our audience is looking forward to hearing more from you. So so thanks again for coming back. My pleasure. And Ryan, in fairness, Adrian's actually the first one that we've invited back, but that was because Adrian presented a very compelling topic to us. And we just felt, hey, it's time to start uh, bringing back some repeat guests. And um, we thought Adrian's proposal as office politics as a topic was too good to pass up. So, okay, Adrian, for decades, office politics have been part of our everyday professional lives, and it is most often viewed in a negative light. Why is that? Yes, that's entirely true. If you say to people, you know, what do you think about office politics or give me another word for office politics? They say things like it's all about backstabbing or brown nosing or boot licking. It's it's about hidden agendas. It's about deals under the table. It's about manipulation, deceitfulness, turf battles, testosterone overload. It's almost impossible when you ask people about office politics to get a, a, a positive take. In other words, it's a word used for deceitfulness, uh, the opposite of what organizations say about themselves. You know, most organizations have their list of values and things, and they say, you know, we want to be transpa- transparent and open and have integrity and so forth. And people in the organization say, well, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Actually, there's this thing called office politics, which is rather rather dirty, rather unfair, rather below the belt. And, you know, the question is, has this always been the case? Yes. And is it simply the cries of people who are not very good at understanding grown-up behavior in organizations? 
Uh, Bob Hogan always says, you know, we have two dilemmas at work, to get along with people and to get ahead of people. And that involves competition. Inevitably, it involves, you know, getting ahead of people. And in the workplace, there's competition for scarce resources. There's one department claiming more money than another. So there's stuff that goes on. Competitiveness goes on. And maybe if you're not very good at this, if you don't understand it very well, then you call it office politics and you call it a, a bad thing. Um, and there are those who deny, refuse to play. They say, "Oh well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to indulge in this in this office politics." They are, if you'd like to call them, political avoiders. They say, "You know, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to play this game because it's it's so dirty." And they, as we will say, uh, see in a minute, there are consequences for the political avoiders, as opposed to those who who dive in and say, "You know." Organizations are complex, organize, uh, complex affairs. There's lots going on. You've got to be, you've got to be savvy. You've got to be skillful to get ahead. So rather than dismiss all behaviors that you don't like or understand as negative in office politics, take another view on it. Yeah, well, I think that's a great introduction, and, and uh, it, it reminds me, Adrian, uh, this this topic and even your discussion here at the beginning. And of course you referenced Bob Hogan. One of the things that Bob Hogan and I have talked about uh, on multiple occasions actually uh, is the sort of politics uh, of, of getting ahead in any kind of organization. I know we're going to dig into office politics here in a bit, but uh, the one example that comes to mind for both of us sometimes is imagine how difficult it is to become. And, and you talked about getting along and getting ahead. And in this case, it's imagine how difficult it is to become the Pope, right? So, you're supposed to be seen as incredibly humble, right? Um, and and not wanting uh, this position. Yet at some level, a lot of people probably do want to be in that position of authority and power. And so it, it must be an incredibly challenging position to navigate. You've got to get everybody else to vote you in without acting like you want to be voted in. Um, and so I think, I, I hope that that's the kind of things we're going to dive into today. Yes, I, I should point out that the there were um, some years ago I was asked to give some advice about selecting the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is our equivalent of the Pope, and they had a list of competencies. One of the competencies I was most impressed by was holiness. I'm not quite sure how you measure or assess <laughs> holiness, but it was one of the competencies you needed to be appointed to that position. That's great. Well, and Adrian, I'm glad you brought up the getting along versus getting ahead um, analogy that, that Dr. Hogan uses quite often. I found that in just communicating with someone who's maybe not all that familiar with a personality or personality psychology or anything like that, whenever you really put it in, the, in, in that form, getting along versus getting ahead, I think people can really visualize others that they've worked with um, who display those those different characteristics, you know, the person who's maybe just sitting back, very kind, cordial, not going to to rock the boat at all. Yes. The person who's cutthroat and is willing to do whatever it takes to, yes. to take that next step. So it really puts it in perspective. So uh, for my next question, Adrian, some organizations are more political than others. Um, can you explain why that's the case? Mm, I, I run a, a, a course on office politics, uh, a little aside. It was very interesting. Organizations 
didn't want to take up my offer of running. It's a three-hour or six-hour session. And, of course, they want to deny there's something called office politics. They say, no, there's no such thing uh, as office politics with us. Of course, they know it to be the case. But anyway, when I do it with a number of organizations, I ask them this question. I say, number one, uh, on a 10-point scale, how political is this organization? And we, you know, we swear to uh, Chatham House rules and nobody uh, disclosing. And the score is usually about eight to 10. Some people claim it's 11 on a 10-point scale. And then I say, well, now think about other organizations you've worked with. Some of you are relatively new and you've come from another organization. Was that more or less political? And you get different answers. And then I, I, I raise this question, well, why are some organizations more political than others? And there are a number of possible explanations. One, you know, it, it, there's a lot of competition for the top. This is the getting ahead business that it's very difficult to uh, get ahead. Working hard, being successful, keeping your head down doesn't do it. You've got to do something else. So it's very competitive. This might be one other example. It might be that it's rather ambiguous what the goals of the organization are. In some organizations, it's pretty clear what you're supposed to be doing. It's very profit-oriented. You know, he who makes most money gets promoted most quickly. But in another organization, the goals are very unclear. It could be that the structure of the organization, you know, the organogram, big organizations have got very complex organograms. And so how do you get from where you are to their deputy head here and, and, and so forth there? That the, the whole thing is, is cloaked in mystery. It might be that you don't have a very clear definition of performance in the organization, that your KRAs or KPIs aren't very clear. It could be that you just come from a, a punishment culture, uh, a, a culture which, um, you know, uh, I always say to people in the organization, I say, does, this your, does your organization uh, motivate you by carrots or by sticks? I say, yes, of course, they do both. But are you a stick organization or a carrot organization? And I think stick organizations where they motivate off by fear and punishment are more likely to be political. And there are other things as well, limited resources, uh, job at risk, corporate culture. I think if you're ever a consultant and deal with companies that you go in as a consultant, it doesn't take very long to see how the political they are. The, the people are very guarded. They're very guarded with each other. They're very unhappy to disclose. They're very ha unhappy, even in training courses, to, to talk and admit this issue of office politics. So I can't give you a simple answer to that. I think it's a complex answer that some are I think all organizations are political, amen, but some are more political than others for the reasons I've... Uh, uh, explained. Well, Adrian, it makes me wonder if there's any other characteristics that we might see that are correlated with the politicalness you mentioned, you know, trying to quantify how political is an organization. So, you know, I think there's some common things people might wonder, like are government organizations more or less political mm. Are private organizations? Does the size of the organization mm. make it more or less political? Those kinds of things, if it's a public company versus a yeah. private company, I don't know I've, if you've seen anything there. Yes, I've actually made that point. And, and people get very vitriolic when you, I, I say that public sector is more political than private sector. 
uh, from my personal experience. And I get vitriol uh, shot at me saying the opposite. I think the reason why you, if you talk about public-private, that you're tapping into political ideology and that gets people going. Um, I do think big organizations are probably more political for all the reasons I've said about resources and ambiguity and structures rather than small organizations. You know, what people want to do now, what young people want to do, they want to work for startups. And they have this vision of a startup where you all go to work in your jeans with your laptop. You probably don't go to work. You sit at home and you, you just get very creative and it's all very jolly and we're all in this together and so forth. And this is seen to be utterly egalitarian. There's no politics whatsoever. Well, these organizations might uh, stay afloat for a very short amount of time, but you're never going to find an organization of any size, uh, of any background, of any, of, of any purpose that hasn't got some, I think, quite important political component. Except academic. Of course. There's, there's almost no politics. Yes. There, right? No, no, no. The academic world. I have to say, like a lot of young academics, I naively believed, when I was young, I naively believed this sort of thing wouldn't happen at the university. And was it Henry Kissinger who said something about, you know, these more politics than universities because the prizes are, are so small? Right. I think universities are un places of unbelievable nastiness and politics. And I say that from uh, well over 30 years of experience in a number of universities. But let's not go there. I don't want to get bitter and twisted. <laughs> well, OK, so, so Adrian, uh, you touched... Uh, on why office politics are considered negative by so many people. However, when you refer to it as office savvy, it sounds much more positive. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah. It, um, fortunately, I read a book by a man called De Luca, and he wrote a book called Office Savvy. And he said that, you know, there are two different views of office politics. There's a sort of negative one. You know, everything is via the grapevine as opposed to it's very important to get uh, in touch with what's going on. The idea of it's not what you know, it's who you know being negative, whereas the other side would say, well, the ability to network is important. And what DeLuca said was that you could see the ability to be successful and to navigate a organization as political savvy. Now, the idea was picked up uh, by two psychologists, uh, a man in America called Ferris and a German called Bickel. And I think actually Bob, has, uh, Bob Hogan has published with yes, one of with these Gerhard, people. Gerhard, yes. And what, yes. They, what they developed, um, oh, 15, 20 years ago now, is a measure of political skill. So rather than talk about office politics as a bad thing, you say, well, let's think about office savvy or political skill. You know, there are people who are able to thrive in difficult, complex, murky organizations. Not only that they're able to thrive, they're able to become successful and, and this is the important point, they can do this with integrity. So they are politically aware of what's going on, where the power lies, how things work, and yet they can deal with people in terms of integrity, not playing games, not Machiavellian. And it's a very small number of people. Uh, DeLuca reckoned that, you know, five to 10% of an organization were really savvy. 
But if you think about it, we can all look back at our careers from somebody we've worked with or for who was savvy. They were smart. They knew where the power lay. They knew how to charm. They knew how to persuade. And what was interesting about them, they weren't necessarily Machiavellian or psychopathic. They simply understood that they were in a complex human organization where things happen. And they had the skills. So I like the word political skill or political savvy. And the people who've been researching this area have been able to demonstrate quite clearly that this is predictive. Uh, it's interesting, a, a couple of months ago, I was doing a Zoom group on uh, political savvy. And these were people in their early 40s that had just been made uh, directors. They were very successful. And I thought I'd give them a, a bit of a shock. And I said, I can tell, I can predict how many of you will be successful in, over the next 10 years. I said, that's my job. I'm a psychologist. I'm a personality psychologist. I make these predictions. And I certainly got their attention. Uh, and then I introduced them to this concept of, of political skill and what it means. Uh, and I highlighted one of the skills, which we'll talk about in a minute. But I think it's very helpful to flip over. Uh, if you want to call it savvy, that's fine with me. If you want to call it skill, that's fine with me. Um, I think what you need to understand is it is possible to... Uh, measure, to define and measure, and indeed train people to become more skillful, such that when they go into big, complex organizations where things are not very clear, where goals are ambiguous, and there's a corporate culture that is not particularly adaptive, they can do well, not well manipulatively, but they can do well for themselves and their team. And that's what political savvy is. That's what political skill is. Adrian, can, can I ask you to dig a little deeper on that? And we didn't talk about this ahead of time, so I, I might be uh, throwing you for a loop here. But when we're thinking about political savvy, what are the kinds of behaviors or the kinds of or even I don't even know uh, what kinds of items people might endorse uh, who, yeah. who are politically savvy? The, 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 there's a very, pretty straightforward uh, questionnaire called the Political Skills Inventory. I've got it in front of me. It's only 18 items. But I think you, you'd understand it. It's got, according to the authors of this measure, it's got four facets, four components, four traits, if you like. The one is uh, social astuteness. This is um, the extent to which you are um, uh, perceptive. Let me give you an example. I understand uh, people very well or... Um, let me see, I have good intuition or savvy about how to present myself to others. Mm -hmm. You know as well as I do that you meet people with what I would call the third eye. They are psychologically insightful. They're psychologically minded. They notice things. They can pick up whether people are liars or not. They can watch people carefully and come to a very clear understanding of what's going on in the room. Some people have this. They are astute. Uh, they they might be psychologically trained or not. Uh, I've met psychologists who are not very good at this, particularly academics, where they are able to read people, read the situation, call it perceptive if you want to. Um, I think that's what this means. So that's one of these factors, which I think is partly trainable. I teach people about nonverbal communication and spotting liars and how to do that sort of thing. The second dimension is called interpersonal influence. 
that's effectively persuasiveness. Um, it's the ability to sell, persuade people to your own uh, view of things. The, is the well-known work of a man called Cialdini and his six influence techniques. You know as well as I do, some people are natural salespeople. They can sell enthusiasm, they can sell a product, they can sell an idea. This is a really useful skill. Uh, that's why in organizations you will find if, if various skill courses are offered, like, uh, inter uh, like persuasiveness and negotiation, everybody chooses that because it's such a useful uh, skill, uh, interpersonal influence. And so you, you need, once you can ask people, uh, I am able to, most, to make uh, people feel comfortable and at ease around me. That's, I think, one of the, the characteristics. The third, I actually think is the most important, and it's called networking ability. Now, my wife rather cynically says, there's only one letter difference between networking and not working. But she's entirely wrong on this. I think, you know, one of the characteristics I've noticed in an organization, a big organization, and you say to people, what I make them do, I say, right, get a piece of paper. Now draw the organizational chart or uh, organogram, if you want to, to, you know, and just let me have a look at your drawing and look at how sophisticated it is. And I say to me, if you've got a problem in IT, who do you contact? If you've got a problem in security, who do you contact? If you've got a problem with, with billing, who do you contact? Do you know in your organization who to contact? Who has the influence and the power? And you know as well as I do, when you look at the organogram, you see this is deputy head of this and this is head of this. You'd never go to these people. You'd go to this person, number three down, because he or she is helpful and insightful and so forth. Now, I think one of the most abiding characteristics of political skill is a knowledge of your own organization and a knowledge of who knows what, where the power lies, where the information lies, where decisions are made, who has more influence. And you probably know there's quite a lot of work done on network analyses now. And what you can show by network analyses is the, the um, patterns of contact in an organization. I was talking to someone the other day who suggested that people wear a little button on, they, they're required to wear a little button on their clothes. And what the button does, it's an electronic meter that dictates everybody that you contact within a meter in the course of the day. So all it knows is that you've been a meter away from X and Y and Z a number of times. And you can plot this. You can plot it in space and see an amazing pattern. Now, you don't know why they've been close together, uh, probably talking, maybe not. But you see a networked pattern. You see people who are at the center of things and you see people who are excluded from things. I've never met a highly successful uh, manager, a highly successful uh, leader of any sort who is not a brilliant networker within the organization, but also outside the organization. That is at the essence of this getting along and getting ahead. You know who knows. And it is indeed, you know, it's, it's not what you know, it's who you know. It's who you know and what they know, and you share it with them. So it's the size and complexity of your network that's incredibly important, and it's teachable. 
let me just mention the, the fourth one, because the fourth um, criteria, the fourth trait, is one that gets people going. And according to uh, Ferris and Bickle, it's called apparent sincerity. What does that mean? Well, you know, I say there are three types of, of labor we know about. There's physical labor, and I think most of us listening are fortunate not to have to do physical labor for our, uh, our occupation. Most of us are, are knowledge workers. We do mental labor, cognitive labor. But there's another type of labor. It's called emotional labor. It's re been written about uh, in a book called The Managed Heart. And you'll see this, of course, in, 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 in serving uh, people in the service industry. Now, what this means, apparent sincerity, is that you're able to express emotions you don't necessarily feel. Doctors will tell you, university professors will tell you, you have heart-sinking patients and heart-sinking students, and the opposite, you have people who radiate enthusiasm. And it is your job, it is a requirement that you treat people just the same, so that if they are heart-sinking, that you don't, you don't let them know that you feel that they are not fun to be with. And this is something called apparent sincerity. It's the ability to express an interest in people uh, equally, whether you are interested or not. Now, I don't think that this is deceitful. I think it's an absolute, if you are working in a restaurant, if you are working on an airplane, you, know, you have to do this to all the passengers just the same, whether you like them or not, whether they abuse you or not. It's a course requirement. Now, I think this apparent sincerity is, you know, people talk about authenticity. They say, we've got to be authentic at work. Well, yes, you have to be authentic to some extent, but this is the ability to express exactly the same as a, as a waiter or a waitress would do in, in a restaurant, express enthusiasm. Hello, sir. Lovely to see you, sir. Do they really mean it? Probably not, but it's a requirement. It's a requirement of dealing with people. So I think this is the debatable one. So people would say, yes, networking ability is important and social astuteness is important, but it's this one called apparent sincerity that gets people going. I think there are other words for it. I think it's the ability to express, to be positive towards others, irrespective of what you necessarily think about them. I think that's a skill. I think there are some people can do it and others can't. I don't think you have to be psychopathic or Machiavellian. I think it's called being a good manager. You, every manager will know that they have some people they favor more than others. Dare one ever ask a parent that they favored one child more than another? And the answer is you could never go there. But they probably do. And they're probably very desperate not to show it. It's that sort of issue. So the four things, again, uh, social astuteness, awareness, awareness of others and awareness of self related to emotional intelligence, the ability to influence, to be, uh, to be persuasive, this idea of building and maintaining and nurturing and feeding a network within and outside your organization, and finally, social astuteness. That, they say, is the essence of this strange thing called political skill. Yeah, Adrian, the, that last one I think is is really, I can see why that gets people going because I think, well, this is you know being inauthentic or whatever, but it's really kind of interesting because 
you know, it is, uh, it's about how you're perceived, right? It's about your reputation. It's about having a reputation as being authentic, as being sincere. Um, whether you actually are or not, uh, kind of doesn't matter, which I think is really fascinating. Yes. You know, people talk about um, being authentic in the workplace. And I say, well, it's a luxury to be authentic. You, can you be authentic? Can I dislike? Can I show my dislike of people um, if I'm their boss? The answer is no, you can't and you shouldn't. And in that sense, you're not being authentic. So the call for a sort of a, 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 an authenticity, you in the ideal world, yes, it would be much nicer to be yourself and to express exactly what you think and feel. Well, I'm not sure you can do this at work. If you do do it at work, I think you're likely to be politically less skillful. Yeah. And as I've said before, it's not a matter of it. Think of the doctor, think of the, the university professor, think of the uh, serving person who has to deal with a whole range of people, some of whom are charming and warm and lovable and some of whom are not. What they have to do is treat them all the same. That's apparent authenticity. It's showing your interest and your and your concern when, frankly, you don't necessarily mean it. Yeah, Adrian, you, you mentioned the social, uh, social astuteness um, as being related to emotional intelligence. But correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like all of this somewhat falls under the emotional intelligence umbrella. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, I define emotional intelligence as uh, self and others, uh, awareness and management. Are you self-aware about your emotions? Are you aware about other people's emotions? Are you able to manage your emotions? Are you able to manage other people's emotions? And I think that that's possibly it. Um, in managing, it's, of course, influencing other people's emotions. Yes, I think you could put this under the umbrella of emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence got a lot of baggage associated with it. Um, there's a lot of uh, ideas that have been dumped in the in the bucket, so to speak. Uh, but yes, I think you've, I think it is. It's around emotions, it's not, but it's not entirely around emotions. It's around thoughts and feel uh, and, and and cognitions as well. But I think that's a fair observation. It it would certainly come under the sort of the social intelligences uh, background. Although, of course, these things would be related to to personality. It would be related to adjustment. Uh, people with low adjustment don't are not able to do the um, uh, apparent, apparent sincerity always so well. Um, it would be related to um, uh, forms of of interpersonal sensitivity, which we know is a personality trait. So I think you know it's a, it's a mixture of traits and emotional intelligence. And I think the important line I want to give with this is is once you identify some of these factors that you can train it. You know, I'm somebody who doesn't believe that personality changes much over time or that personality is very trainable. But I think these are skills and these skills are trainable. So if you if you looked at Cialdini's work on influence and persuasibility, you can learn. You can learn how to do it. You can learn those skills. You can learn some of the processes of networking. So I think the, the, the positive aspect of this is, is de depending on, not depending on where you're coming from, you can get better 
at being politically skillful, which at the end of the day pays a great deal uh, in terms of your working life and, and success. Okay, so for my next question, you know, I, I think we all probably know that there are some people out there who simply choose to not engage in office politics. Hmm. Can you explain why that might be detrimental to their careers? Yeah, uh, this was something that um, uh, DeLuca uh, wrote about right at the beginning. And he divided people into political avoiders and political activists. And he said that of the avoiders, these are people who choose not to do it. They, they're a sort of, they, they fall into a number of categories. There are some who say, well, I believe that if I work harder and if my, you know, I'm highly productive and I keep my head down, that I don't have to go into this dirty office politics game, that people will recognize the sort of person I am, the sort of work I do, the sort of output I have. And this is enough. This will do. And I just, I don't need to play. I don't want to play. And therefore, this will do. I would like to think that's true. It's never been my experience that the hardworking, highly productive individual alone succeeds. So that's one type of political avoider. Another one is the sort of waiting for clarity. You know, here we are, here I am in England, and we've got Brexit, and we've got COVID, and we've got all sorts of things. People say, well, you know, I, 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 we, when, the world, when, the, when the sky clears, and when we can see the future, then I think I, I'll be more involved in the organization. But until this time, I'm not going to get involved in all these shenanigans until we get clarity. Well, the news for people like that is you're never going to get clarity, I'm afraid. The, you know, the, the sky will never go blue enough. And there are those who are, are cynical, not sceptical, cynical. And they say, look, it's dirty. Office politics is dirty. I'm not going to play that game because I don't want to get involved in this dirty behavior. Well, my question is, it's, is it rationalizing your inability, your lack of skill? You know, if you see it as a skillful activity, as a skillful game, uh, you, I think some of the avoiders who don't get involved don't know what to do. You know, there was a, a people you know, love two by two. So you have politically aware, politically unaware, and you have act with integrity, don't act with integrity. And the ones who are politically unaware can be either innocent or inept. In other words, they, they, they don't know how the world works. They don't know how organizations work. And most of us can look back to our early days and our late or early 20s or whatever when we've got our first job and our charming innocence when we went into organizations. Well, if you stay innocent, you're not going to be very successful. So I think people who choose not to participate and who, uh, who say office politics is bad and dirty and so forth, don't know how to play it. It's that they are rationalizing their lack of skill and lack of ability. Flip it over and say, this is a skill. It's a skill that you need. It's not a dirty or manipulative skill, although it can be. If you look at it that way, you can try and persuade those who won't or can't take part in office politics to play the game. So I think there are a number of different types of individuals who choose not to partake or, or try uh, office-savvy skill or politics. 
Adrian, so a couple of things you mentioned there stick out to me. So one is, and I would like to talk about both of them, but the first one, I guess, is, is there another group that I've always sort of felt like maybe there was this group that seemed to be totally unaware that office politics were going on? It's not so much active disengagement, like you mentioned some of these groups who are actively disengaged, yeah. but that, that are just sort of uh, have no idea that this yes. is happening. Yes, I, I think you're right. You know, they come, quants, geeks. There are some people who are very, very technically sophisticated. Um, um, scientists, usually, often people dealing with numbers, engineers, accountants, actuaries. Um, some would be nasty and say they're almost on the spectrum. They're brilliant at what they do, but they're unaware of, as you say, they're unaware of what's going on. They cut their heads down. They're completely fascinated by uh, spreadsheets or designs or something. Um, and just don't take cognizance of what's going on. So yeah, I think you're right. I've met them. Uh, some of the, they they're unlikely, in my view, to climb the greasy ladder of right. uh, office success. But maybe they're happy. If they're happy doing what they're doing without being aware of what's going on, uh, then good luck to them. But I think you're right. Yeah. The other thing that occurred to me. Adrian, in describing these groups of people or these individuals that um, sort of avoid office politics is um, some time ago, and I think we did a podcast on this, Blake will remember for sure, um, you know, I identified in our own assessments here at Hogan um, uh, eight common profiles, or if, you, if, if one really wanted to, they could call them types or sort of common patterns of personality scores that we see across all of our assessments. And one of those uh, I've sort of called overachievers, but it really resonates with this first group that you talked about, this group that says, if I just work really hard, if I just do my job, you know, I don't need to play politics, people will recognize my talent. And here's what's really interesting, Adrian, I've looked at a number of data sets now, and that group is actually, despite they get really good performance ratings, um, because they, they, they do, they work really hard. They're really productive, um, is definitely is well underrepresented in leadership, executive level ranks. And then there's another group that what, which we call networkers, which that is really what they do. They are very comfortable playing politics. They have these, these characteristics that you described earlier, these politically, uh, savvy behavioral characteristics, and they are heavily overrepresented in executive, uh, executive levels. Yes, I, I totally agree. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, we've all known it from our personal experience in Oregon. I remember being made a, a university lecturer and then a professor. The, the brightest and the most, the, the, on whatever criteria you want, we're far from the most successful, at mm. least in climbing the, the, the role. So these would be your ambitious types who are very productive, very successful, very hardworking, very good members of the community. Now, the question I suppose you have to ask yourself is, do they want to climb? Do they, they want reward, uh, but do they want reward in terms of managerial rank and power? Mm -hmm. um, some of them don't. Some of them genuinely don't want to go any further, and that's fine. To think that you get promoted to higher and higher positions just on your hard work and ability is sadly not true. I've never, I've never found an organization where that some more than others, yes, but that's not enough. 
And then your other point is, is exactly right. The, you know, the, the schemers, the, the ones who, without much ability uh, and without much productivity, have worked out the, the game, as it were, and are very successful in ducking and weaving and diving and trying to get their way up, up the greasy pole. Some succeed. Some do. That I, I believe there is a God and they get caught in the end. But there are those who, you know, think that networking alone is sufficient without any form of, uh, uh, of being a good uh, citizen of the organization and productive. Well, Adrian, now that you're done talking about me, um, we can... <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, but I do, I do recall... Um, I do believe, Ryan, I, I fell into that networker category. So <laughs> thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> and we did do we did do an episode on that, right, Blake? We, we, we did. Uh, you know, I think at some point uh, late last year. Um, but, you know, we've done enough of these now that they're all kind of running together, which is a great thing. You know, we, we enjoy doing this podcast. So that's it's good that you can't remember them. Uh uh, Adrian, so earlier we talked about the four key components to office politics, but you have also developed six strategies of politically savvy people. Can you go through what those six strategies are for our listeners? Yeah, I, I'm not sure they're entirely my own. I've borrowed and adapted them for other people. But yeah, I think you, people need a, you know, a list of things to do. Uh, number one, partner with your boss. Um, I... This point about apparent sincerity, I had a boss I didn't like. I didn't like him and he didn't like me. And neither of us hid it. For 10 years, I was in the shadows when he was my boss because we sort of avoided one another. He saw that I wasn't keen on his way of doing things. And this was not very clever on my part. You know, your boss has power over you. That your, your future in the organization has, is often in the hands of your boss and therefore making him or her feel that you are a, a, a colleague, an ally, a supporter is terribly important. You know, partner with powerful people, partner with your boss. Don't snipe. Don't disagree. This is where the apparent sincerity comes in. Next, be a team player. Be known as a team player. It's terribly important, particularly with uh, the whole business of networking, that you are good with, happy in, with teams. This allows you to be invited to be in multiple teams in the organization where you get to know how the, how the thing works. You get to know who knows what, who is good, who is successful. I think, third, understand the power map or the network. You know, I go back to this point, sit now, now, even if, if you're in a very big organization, just do your section of it. Just do engineering or accounting or HR and draw the organogram in front of you, who reports to who, and notify or, or specify who are the most powerful and important people in terms of, of their influence and persuasion. And what you'll find is it's not necessarily the person with the title. You know, we, we often do this in, in um, uh, exercises, is getting people uh, to draw networks and showing how you can get to people through the network. This is not just attending cocktail parties and being charming. 
This is getting to know who's who and where. I have a boss or had a boss, the one who replaced the one I didn't get on with, who was the most successful networker I've ever come across. He not only remembered names, he was charming, he was warm, and he was kind. But my goodness, he could pick up the telephone. He was a professor of psychology. He could phone people in 10 different countries and get to the person, the right person. He was a networker. So number four, and this is an interesting one, uh, practice subtle self-promotion. Uh, let me tell you a story uh, indeed about this, this boss of mine. He was head of a section in the psychology department, the section I was in. And there were five sections. We were the biggest psychology department in the world. There were 120 members of staff. And he decided we'd have a little newsletter. So my section, his section, brought out a, a newsletter. It, it started in print, but then, of course, it became a blog. And it said who was doing what and who was publishing and so forth. We liked it. He liked it. It became very successful. People copied it. But, of course, what was it, why was it so useful to him? Because he was the head of this group. And I think if you make your team successful, then you bask in the glory of the leader of that team. And I think that's what's meant by sort of subtle self-promotion. It's very unpleasant blowing your own trumpet and arrogantly showing off. But there are ways you can do it so that you can raise your profile. We all know with Facebook and, and LinkedIn and so forth that this is one way in which you get to know other people and they get to know you. So pay attention to that. Next, uh, at fifth, I think, connect with powerful people. The power in the organization is not represented, as I've said many times, by the organogram. Because a person is head of this or deputy head or chief, this doesn't necessarily mean they have power. There are different types of power. And you work out quite quickly. You know, they're, they're, the, the, head, the chief executive listens to one or two people. Those are the people who have power. Connect with them. Work out how it all works. This is not dirty. This is not below the surface. It's called being grown up. And finally, I think, you know, commit to the business. You have to be shown to believing in what you do, believe in your product, in your process, and never to bow bad mouth it under any circumstances. So I think these are relatively straightforward tips. I think they can be learned. I wished I, ha I was taken aside when I was uh, just made a, a university lecturer. Uh, I had a nice boss, but he himself wasn't politically skillful. He was a charming man, a warm man. He died recently. He, he met Sigmund Freud. It's a very interesting story. He was Viennese and he was a kind man, but he wasn't politically savvy. And therefore, he didn't model it to me and he didn't give me good advice. He was a lovely man to have as my mentor, but I could have done better in the sense that I had somebody who gave me sage advice in terms of political skill. So let me just go through them again. Partner with your boss, be a team player, understand the power uh, map or the network, practice self, subtle self-promotion, connect with powerful people, and commit to the business. Those are my six rules. So, Adrian, I'm curious uh, for people like, let's say, OK, I, I, you know, I've heard this podcast and I've heard Adrian's rules and I'm going to start engaging in these things. What kind of 
reputational consequences might I expect? Or, or how are people who, who do those kinds of things perceived by their coworkers, right? So I wonder sometimes if people feel like, oh, I don't want to do that because my coworkers will think this way of me or something yeah. like that. I, it's a good question. What, um, what DeLuca said was of the people who are not the avoiders, the players, they are divided into the skillful, the savvy and the Machiavellian. And the Machiavellian, of course, are, and we've seen them at work as well, that they will have a lot of these skills and a lot of these activities, but they don't practice integrity. It's very selfish. Um, and they have a reputation for being dodgy or untrustworthy. They can be very successful. They can do very well in organizations because they're, if they're insightful and clever and socially skilled, they can do well, but they will have the reputation of low integrity. This boss I had, um, a, a lovely man with all of the political skills, had integrity. He really did. You believed him and he, you saw him in action and he was successful. He was successful for himself and he was successful for others. But it's this issue of integrity that distinguishes between the reputation of the Machiavellian, the the, the ducker and weaver, the squirmer, the, the, the person who climbs the greasy pole through stepping on others and knifing them in the back, rather than those who are more skillful. I think DeLuca said of the 10 or 20% that are who take part in skillful activity, more are Machiavellians than are skillful. But that would be my distinction between the ways in which you practice all this with a sense of integrity, with a sense of betterment for all, or whether it is 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 deeply self-interested and and loathsomely uh, Machiavellian. Well, Adrian, first off, this has been an awesome conversation. Um, we you know enjoyed having you on the first time. Definitely wanted to bring you on for this. So. As we are about to wrap up this episode, I have one last question, and it kind of follows the theme of our final questions we like to ask our guests is, what advice would you give young professionals entering the workforce when it comes to office politics? Yes, uh, apart from the six rules, um, be uh, be perceptive. Um, start doodling. Well, this business about networking. Uh, it's very interesting and it's, it, it's a hot topic. Do women network differently from men? Uh, do they network too many other women? Do people network according to their uh, ethnic background or whatever? And the answer is yes, they do uh, often, but the ones who are more successful network more extensively. So I think even if you are a bit more introverted than others, the idea that you understand that you network with people in the organization early on, it, go meet people, go let them know who you are, what you do, be helpful all the time, make, make connections with people in the workplace. And also, I would advise young people to look outside the workplace and say, you know, you've got competitors, you've got people who are doing the same thing, you know, find out how that works. So, Become more aware of other uh, of people in your organization. S start this idea of a little uh, uh, network analysis uh, and seeing how things work. Try and pick up the corporate culture 
what's acceptable and what's not. You know, they say corporate culture is defined as the way we do things around here. Well, learn quickly, watch, be observant. This is the idea of the interpersonal uh, sensitivity. Now, if you are extroverted and, and self-confident, it's easier to do. And this is more difficult for people who are more introverted, uh, perhaps come from more technical parts of the organization. They don't do this as naturally and as easily. So I think they need to put more effort into it. And remember, connect with successful people, connect with powerful people, work out in the organizations. I don't want to call them winners and losers, but there are those who are clearly going ahead faster. Watch them, make friends with them, see how they do it, learn from them. Count yourself, be an anthropologist in this new and exotic tribe you have uh, got into this, the organization and see how to play the game. I don't think you need to be dubious or Machiavellian or lacking in integrity. It's learning to, it's, it's a game, it's a skill, it's a, uh, it's, a, it's a perceptiveness and an awareness. So throw yourself into it, you know, go to all the functions, read all the emails, find out as much as you can. You need to be a, an anthropologist in your, in your strange tribe, beginning to understand them, because the sooner you do that, the sooner you work out all the important issues about power and influence and how you can let others see how hardworking and successful you are. Well, I think that is really good advice for for some folks out there who may be, you know, taking their first steps into an organization or even folks who have been in an organization for a long time or, or perhaps struggling to figure out what it is they need to do next or, or what are the next steps to advance their career to get where they want to get to. So I want to say thanks so much, Adrian, for coming on today. This is great advice for our listeners and just a, a really interesting and fascinating discussion. And, and I hope uh, our, our audience enjoys it as much as I did. So thank you again for, for coming on and being um, our, our first returning guest. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, Adrian, thank you so much for, for joining us again. And we look forward to having you again at some point in the future. So uh, really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. And that does it for the Science of Personality podcast, episode 31. Be sure to join us in two weeks for another fun and informative episode. Cheers, everybody. This has been the Science of Personality podcast brought to you by Hogan Assessments. You can access all podcast episodes on our website, scienceofpersonality.com, or on the streaming service of your choice. See you next time.